This episode of The Curbsiders is sponsored by ACP's Internal Medicine Meeting 2020, the premier live clinical and practice-related education meeting for internists and subspecialists. Early bird pricing is available through January 31st, 2020 at annualmeeting.acponline.org. And don't forget to use the code IM20CURB. This episode of the Curbsiders is brought to you in partnership with the American College of Physicians. ACP members can claim free CME and mock credit at www.acponline.org forward slash curbsiders. Welcome back to The Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Chris the Chew Man Chew, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Dr. Matthew Watto and Dr. Paul Williams. Producers on this episode are Dr. Jasney Devgun, Dr. Justin Burke, and Beth Garbs Garbatelli. This episode will cover the primary and secondary prevention of ACVD, including common questions on the appropriate management of patients, LDL goals, and follow-up, and when to step up or stop therapy. We are joined by our guest, Dr. Aaron Mikos, who is an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Cardiology and Department of Epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins University. She also holds the title of Director of Women's Cardiovascular Health and the Associate Director of Preventative Cardiology at her institution. She has published over 280 manuscripts, including Jack and JAMA, and is the editorial board of Circulation. She is the co-investigator of the MESA and ERIC studies, and her specific research interests include cardiovascular disease in women, physical activity and nutrition, and the risk prediction models such as coronary calcium scoring and the use of biomarkers to assess this risk. And on with the show. So, Aaron, uh, the first thing we like to ask our guests is, can you give us one liner, describe yourself, and tell the audience something about yourself, a hobby outside of medicine? Sure. So I'm a preventive cardiologist uh, and a daughter, wife, and a mother of a soon-to-be 13-year-old. So I'm getting into a teenager in my house. Yikes. And my hobby is running, although I'm not very talented at it, but I'm trying to run a marathon in all 50 states. And so I finished 36 states so far, just 14 left to go. Holy cow. Holy cow. Is- <laughs> I'm very slow at them. So That was going to be my question because I saw you put it on uh, Twitter about trying to do that. I was going to ask you how far you were getting. So yeah, my question. Okay. Yeah. You're, you're on the back nine ish. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Congratulations. That's, that's a lot of marathons. Thank you. Thank you. It combines my love of running with my love of travel and a way of seeing the country in a, in a different way. You don't run it in like a green man suit or something like that, do you? I know there's a lot of those. Are you a known character at marathons? No. <laughs> that would just make no. it so much cooler. But okay. That would make it so much cooler. But... <laughs> Does the pizza box guy still run? You know what I'm talking about? He like used to carry around yeah. like a pizza box. Uh, like a, It was almost like a Statue of Liberty type thing, but it was like a pizza box. Apparently it weighed like 10 pounds and you carry it the whole marathon. Yeah, there's always a banana in every race, the running banana. <laughs> 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 All right. I literally just ran the Las Vegas uh, Rock and Roll Half Marathon on Sunday. So that was the tail end of my vacation before coming back. So you, I mean, I feel like I, I've pretty much caught up to you, except that was my first half marathon and I never want to do it again. But I feel like well, otherwise we're pretty close. Yeah. Yes, exactly. We're the same. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Paul? Sure. Um, so we usually ask about a favorite book or book you feel other physicians should read. I think I'm going to broaden it a little bit for you and just ask 
Um, cause I have too many book recommendations anyway. So just any kind of, um, recent piece of pop culture that you've consumed that you've enjoyed that you can recommend so we can all decompress. Yeah. So I haven't read the book, but I've already adopted the philosophy about the Marie Kondo approach of what sparks joy because I'm actually moving to a new house. So I've had to like go through all my things of what sparks joy and that doesn't move into the new house. But I've been trying to do this with my personal and professional life to engage with people and activities that bring me meaning and value and declutter all the rest from my life that doesn't spark joy. Oh, you're decluttering people as well. That's that's good. Well, you know, there are some, you know, negative people that don't spark joy, but sure. uh, the haters. Yep. <laughs> and do you do you thank them before you sort of get them out of your life? Is that part of the process? <laughs> and then well? throw them in the trash. It's, it's called yes, the un, uh, the mute button on Twitter. So. <laughs> so my question is, what is the best advice you ever received as a learner, or as a teacher, or, or in your career? Yeah. So, you know, I like to run. So I always talk in running analogies about, you know, an academic career is a marathon and not a sprint. And so I'm, uh, my personal mantra is that in 2018, Boston Marathon winner, Des Linden, she has this phrase, you know, keep showing up. And so, you know, that's my academic philosophy. I keep showing up, you know, whenever my grants are not discussed or my papers rejected or, you know, every day I just keep showing up. So that's my advice. We, we got to brag about this. This is, uh, we're, we're recording this shortly after this was released and this will, this is going to come out in the new year. Uh, th- this episode, I, I believe is going to come out in early January. We're recording this in late November, but, uh, you had a paper published in the new England journal titled lipid management for the prevention of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. You're the first author. It's fantastic. If, uh, if, if you feel confused after this episode, just read that paper. It explains everything very well. Thank you. Thank you. Talk about keep showing up. I actually was working on that for almost like five years, different versions. And so I'm very happy to see it finally published. Yeah, it's just it does a really great job of just like bringing together the 2018 lipid guidelines, the 2019 uh, prevent uh, cardiovascular disease prevention guidelines. It's it's just fantastic. And to have the, the the famous New England Journal figure next to the words that you've written has to be thrilling too. like the, the one that sort of goes over the targets of, of lipid control. Just I, I I can't imagine. It's got to be a thrill. Yeah. So I think we should get. I, I know we have a lot of stuff to get into tonight. Um, did anybody want to give quick picks of the week? Paul, did you did you have something you wanted to give? I always have something. It's, it depends on whether or not you want it or not. Okay. Just let, yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. We can give brief ones. Sure. Yeah. I'll, 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 this will not be one of my endless movie descriptions. I'm going to recommend a book for a change. I'm going to recommend the book Shadowland by Peter Straub. It's a 1980 book. Peter Straub is a award-winning uh, horror and suspense author. He's written with Stephen King a couple of books too. But it's basically a story that's about two kids who go to the same boarding school who are brought together by the shared love of magic and they go to one of the kids' uncle's house for um, a vacation and things turn sinister and kind of hallucinatory. And it's a book that's very it's very steeped in the mythology of fairy tales um, and as well as the power of story itself. And so the whole thing is it's just... It's a fascinating, engrossing read. Um, so if you want something that's just a nice diversion, just in time to have missed Halloween, I'm going to recommend Shadowland by Peter Straub. Sounds good. What about you, Chris? I have a few picks of the week, too. Ooh, Beth, you go first. Oh, sure. Um, so if you're in the mood to watch something, The Crown is really awesome in the new season. This is going to kind of date the episode, but it came out. the new season came out in November. Um, so you can can catch up on the old seasons but the new season with the new cast is really good so far i haven't finished it but um yeah really it's kind of funny at points um 
and it gives you a little bit of a history lesson. Although sometimes it's not always clear how much of it's fabricated, but it's it's just a fun kind of watch um, and really well made. And then in terms of books, two that I haven't finished yet, but I'm in the midst of reading are Catch and Kill by Ronan Farrow. And it's about um, the predators in Hollywood and kind of going into the investigation of, of that. And it does kind of give you the story that you've heard before, but a lot more detail. So if you're interested in knowing more about that, I recommend it. Um, and Trick Mirror, which is a collection of essays by Gia Tolentino, who's a New Yorker writer. And they're about sort of being in the modern era and um, kind of hard to explain what the the general theme is between them, besides that they sort of relate to technology and how we display ourselves on technology and uh, current trends and stuff. So check it out. You're doing a lot of reading for a medical student, <laughs> Beth. Uh, I'm very impressed. <laughs> I've been trying to use less screens and more reading and it has improved my like mood and my concentration. I feel like makes me more focused. I like lock my phone up now during the day when I'm studying and it's my productivity has gotten so much better. It's kind of alarming. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Finally, maybe you can accomplish something during your second year of medical school. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Chris, should we move into it? Cause I think we're, I think time wise, we should probably move into it unless you have like a really quick, uh, I do have one really quick one. So okay. I'm taking a, a course on uh, creating student curriculums right now. And I read this book called Make It Stick by Brown, Rediger, and McDaniel. And it's just a wonderful book and has really changed my whole perception on how to learn. And and, and the basis of the book is basically learning, especially long-term learning, is not actually intuitive. And so they sort of go through and have really great citations on studies on how um, to make people learn, how to, how to learn better and how to um recall information better so that's high on my list i don't know if we've ever recommended i think we might have recommended before but made um, to stick by the heath brothers is the one that i i believe has been recommended not make it stick or yeah yeah i think they're they're very similar titles but i think you're recommending the the made to stick is by the heath brothers that's the one that make it stick is by brown rediger and mcdaniel and it was recommended by one of my my colleagues during this course so it was really great This episode of The Curbsiders is sponsored by ACP's Internal Medicine Meeting 2020, the premier live, clinical, and practice-related education meeting for internists and subspecialists alike, bringing together the best minds and voices of internal medicine from around the world. It is the premier clinical education conference for all internists, where you can stay current while productively earning CME and MOC. Whether you're a primary care internist, hospitalist, office-based internist, or a subspecialist, ACP's Internal Medicine Meeting is a highly efficient way for all internists to keep up to date with the latest medical trends and practice-changing advances in medical knowledge. Early bird pricing is still available through January 31st, 2020 at annualmeeting.acponline.org. And don't forget to use the code IM20CURB. All right, Chris, let's start off with a case. I'm very disappointed to see that there is not a clever name uh, uh, Justin Burke asked us to put one in. I just could not bring myself to make up anything. So, <laughs> okay. Well, his so, name is Cal Esterol, and uh, that's <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Best I can do on short notice, Chris. All right. So Cal Esterol is a well, is <laughs> a fifty-five-year-old African American female. Uh, with hypertension and hyperlipidemia, here for an annual exam. 
Her lipid panel shows the following, a total cholesterol of 230, HDL of 35, LDL of 170, and she is, she is a former smoker having quit seven months ago. Her blood pressure is 140 over 90 while, and is on lisinopril, and her ASCVD risk is 25%. So I guess our first question is, where does the, so we have this new guide, these guidelines since 2013 with this ACVD risk calculator. Where does this calculator actually come from? And what, what is the meaning of the, when we, when we, when we um, get results from this calculator? Yeah, so the, you know, in terms of the cholesterol guidelines, we want to match the intensity of therapy with the absolute risk of the patient. So for primary prevention, we have to start somewhere with some kind of assessment. So uh, we've, in the 2018 cholesterol guidelines, we did still bring forward this concept about this 10-year risk assessment using the pooled cohort equation, which was derived from uh, sort of diverse uh, U.S. Uh, cohorts. It was uh, um, uh, sex and race-specific equations first introduced in 2013. It's best calibrated for non-Hispanic whites and blacks living in the U.S., which so it may not predict well for other race ethnicities. But importantly, it predicts 10-year risk for both coronary events and for stroke. Um, but the input uh, variables are very similar to what we saw back in the Framingham. It's uh, age, sex, race, total and HDL cholesterol, systolic blood pressure, use of blood pressure medications, smoking, and diabetes. Um, and again, that's, uh, we'll estimate 10-year risk for the start of the conversation, but as we'll talk about uh, uh, the new updated 2018 guidelines, uh, then allows you to sort of personalize from that uh, by considering other uh, risk-enhancing factors to help guide decisions about statin therapy. Aaron, I wanted to break in about the, in 2018, we, we had covered a, the paper that appeared in the annals, kind of looking at recalibrating these, kind of updating the data that was that goes into the pooled cohort equation. They had a revised and revised equation. This was by Yadlowski, and it was Annals Internal Medicine 2018. Is that being used in practice now? Is it, have they updated the, the pooled cohort equation since 2013 that we're using now, or is it still the same kind of pool of patients? So it's the same uh, equation that was derived back in 2013. Uh, it's very hard in clinical practice to constantly recalibrate with every single uh, different population. So with the 2018 guidelines emphasize that this is the start of the risk discussion is this calculation, but we know from a lot of the papers that emerged quite after, soon after 2013 that this calculator is imperfect. There's uh, situations where it both overestimates risk in populations with less social deprivation uh, and then it actually can underestimate risk in certain other populations. And so this can lead to over or under uh, treatment, which is why uh, there's additional, the 2018 guidelines are more personalized. They include, uh, for especially for those, the borderline or intermediate risk group individuals to consider a lot of clinical factors that you already know about the patient, you know, such as family history, South Asian ancestry, autoimmune disease, HIV disease, a number of lipid and other bio markers, you know, this information might help strengthen the decision to start a statin or intensify statin, um, but you can use these other factors to personalize uh, given the limitations that was brought up after 2013 with, with this calculator um, overestimating risk in a lot of individuals. Yeah. Now, I have, so I have one question, actually, sir, two questions, but my first question is, I think you said something about intermediate risk, and is this a, this is a sort of a a newer risk category that wasn't in the 2013 guidelines. Is that correct? Yeah. So the, um, 
after you calculate the 10-year risk, so first of all, I want to start with the fact who should get a 10-year risk assessment. So this is primary prevention. This is designed to be used for individuals who are 40 to 75 who don't have diabetes um, because uh, statins are recommended for patients with diabetes regardless of the 10-year risk score. Um, so patients 40 to 75 without diabetes who have LDLs 70 to 189. Uh, because above 190, uh, severe primary hypercholesterolemia, those individuals are, again, recommended for statins regardless of the 10-year risk score. So these are the people you'd estimate the score. And then you break them into four bins. So individuals who are low risk are less than 5% 10-year risk. Uh, most of the time, lifestyle is enough for those individuals. Individuals with a greater than 20% 10-year risk, this is high-risk category, and usually pharmacological therapy is needed with lifestyle therapy. And then you have the two groups in the middle, the borderline, which is 5 to 7.5%, and then the intermediate group, which is 75 to 19.9%. So this is the uh, the groups in the middle, and, and above 7.5% 10-year risk is still a statin benefit group where you would consider statin therapy, uh, but the guidelines then said that you can use these risk-enhancing factors uh, to help uh, strengthen the decision to use a statin. And then uh, if risk is uncertain, after you calculate the 10-year risk and after you consider these risk-enhancing factors, if there's still uncertainty about whether to start statins for intermediate or select borderline uh, individuals, you can also measure a coronary artery calcium score to further refine that risk upwards or downwards to guide uh, statin decisions. Yeah, I think. <clears throat> Go on, Paul. I was just going to say, I, I think our natural tendency, you know, we're, we're so we're using these risk estimates to decide sort of where to start medication. I think our tendency is to think of this in terms of medication management. And I know that sort of the cornerstone of therapy is is the therapeutic lifestyle change stuff. And I I, I sometimes. Certainly with me, it gets short shrift. I'm just wondering if you have um, sort of a standard spiel or, or I mean, obviously tailored to the patients, but sort of what general principles do you talk about when you're talking about the lifestyle changes that go along with the medication management? Oh, absolutely. So this is the foundation for uh, managing cardiovascular risk and blood cholesterol is the facilitation of a healthy lifestyle, which of course means diet. And this is important across the lifespan, particularly from primordial prevention, trying to prevent risk factors from developing in the first place. So certainly uh, we have the discussion about diet. We are recommending diet uh, rich in fruits and vegetables. That's low in saturated fats, uh, low in refined uh, carbohydrates, but relatively uh, rich in the uh, polyunsaturated fats, the good fats and lean protein, particularly plant-based protein, and enriched with nuts, uh, plant phytosterols, high fiber foods, those can potentially reduce LDL cholesterol by up to 30 to 40 milligrams per deciliter. So although a lot of cholesterol, you know, is genetically determined, diet can really make an impact on lipids. And we should never forget to have, you know, to have this discussion uh, with all patients for primary and secondary prevention. I just want to plan out where we go next with this because I think talking about um, talking about how to actually measure the labs is somewhat interesting and and which labs specifically you get because there there is this kind of mention of some of the I guess adjuvant labs you talked about like risk enhancing factors. Do you think now is a good time to go through that, Chris, or do you want to? Yeah, I I want to talk about risk enhancing factors because I think this is sort of an interesting area. Uh, especially, I think there were some added things, especially in these 2018 guidelines about, especially very some um, woman-specific risk-enhancing factors that were not discussed in previous um, guidelines. I sort of want to delve into that since those, those are sort of new. Okay. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think this is a really important thing to personalize because, you know, the, the factors that are in the pooled cohort equations, you know, are sort of just those basic traditional risk factors. But there's a lot of risk factors we know that are meaningful that are not in that equation. And that way, some patients can have their risk underestimated. So these risk enhancing factors include things like having a family history or premature cardiovascular disease, having um, uh, primary hypercholesterolemia with an LDL of 160 to 189. Uh, again, above 190, we're already thinking about statins. But if you're on the higher end of, of the LDL uh, of 160 to 189, statins would be encouraged as well. Uh, metabolic syndrome is really important, chronic kidney disease, uh, chronic inflammatory conditions like lupus, psoriasis, rheumatoid arthritis, HIV. And then I do a lot of women's health uh, research. I'm really excited the fact that uh, premature menopause, and a mention of adverse pregnancy uh, outcomes such as preeclampsia are highlighted as factors that enhance a woman's uh, risk. Um, there's also high-risk race ethnicity, the South Asian ancestry. And then um, if measured, if someone has persistently elevated triglycerides above 175 non-fasting on uh, at least three occasions, that's a risk enhancer. And if, if measured, an elevated C-reactive protein above two, an elevated lipoprotein little a, an elevated ApoB. Um, you know, the guidelines don't say that you have to measure these other factors, but if you have that information available uh, and they're abnormal, that would certainly strengthen your decision to initiate statin therapy. So let's, yeah, I, I just wanted to follow up on the the lab-wise there. You said non-fasting triglycerides. So the, the, the guideline actually says for most patients, you can check a non-fasting lab test, which I think is a lot more convenient a lot of the times because a lot of the times I'm getting other labs and patients would like totally starve themselves for like 16 hours and they're on a diuretic and then they're in like kidney injury when they get there. Um, so I like the fact that they said non-fasting labs for a lot of patients. And and then I guess my follow-up question would be, how do you decide uh, who is getting ApoB testing or LP little a testing, um, the high sensitivity CRP as well, like those adjuvant tests? Yeah, so um, I think certainly I think ApoB is very useful. So um, lipoprotein little a, as you may know, is genetically uh, inherited. Um, so you really only have to kind of measure this sort of once to assess someone's risk. Okay. So I certainly measure lipoprotein little a in uh, individuals with a strong family history. Um, I also, uh, and individuals who have premature coronary disease themselves, because in the future, coming down the pipeline may actually be uh, targeted therapy for those with elevated lipoprotein little a. So you, we won't know uh, who has elevated until we measure it. And actually, the European guidelines say to measure it once in everybody. Uh, but I've been certainly measuring people's family history. So ApoB, uh, again, the, a lot of times LDL that we get with our lipid panel tends to be uh, the Friedewald equation, and it doesn't really uh, work all that well with estimating um, LDL at sort of these extremes of very low uh, LDL. Uh, and so a lot of times patients may actually have increased atherogenic particles that uh, may be under-recognized by measuring LDL. So I think um, I measure it in people when I, you know, think I'm close to sort of goal and kind of want to assess their total burden of atherosclerotic, uh, uh, atherogenic lipid particles. Um, 
one can measure a CRP. I have to say I'm more of a coronary calcium uh, person uh, in, in terms of if risk is uncertain for primary prevention, instead of trying to measure more biomarkers and try to assess risk, I, I look for disease itself, uh, which is a, a strategy that was endorsed by the uh, guidelines with a two-way indication. If risk is uncertain, you could um, you know, measure coronary artery calcium score. Uh, you know, As plaque is building in the arteries, a certain percentage of it can come calcified. And so the presence of coronary calcium is, uh, you know, a strong marker of total atherosclerotic plaque burden. And so if somebody has disease, it, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it would really favor starting a, a statin therapy. So instead of trying to predict risk, I think a coronary artery calcium score, you know, measures the disease itself, which is why uh, when compared head to head to a lot of these markers and, and studies such as the multi-ethic study of atherosclerosis, coronary calcium has sort of emerged as the most superior uh, marker for refining risks, both upwards and downwards than all these other biomarkers. So I kind of go straight to coronary calcium when I'm uncertain, but the guidelines do include these other uh, 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 blood biomarkers. Can you describe sort of like, so I guess my sort of common question is, how often are you um, ordering coronary calcium scoring and and what what types of uncertainties are your most, most typical cases where you're ordering them? Yeah, so the most points that go into the uh, 10-year risk score goes to age. So it's largely an age calculator. So there may be a lot of older adults. So simply, you know, almost all men above the age of 60 and women over the age of 70 are above this uh, 7.5% risk threshold. So certainly when there's some kind of uncertainty about their risk, perhaps their cholesterol is not that high and we think that it's mostly age-driven, um, I uh, you can use it to refine the risk because the, if there's a zero calcium score, uh, a calcium score of zero is uh, one of the strongest negative risk factors for uh, uh, subsequent cardiovascular events. Although um, nothing in life is zero risk, uh, uh, but a coronary calcium score of zero is about a 0.1% per year event rate. So it might take someone whose estimated risk is quite high and, and shift them the post-test probability downward enough where uh, they might feel comfortable deferring uh, statin therapy. So this is really helpful in patients who may be having um, reluctance to start a statin uh, um, when we're trying to guide the decision. You know, the presence of plaque, I would strongly favor that they start a statin. They have disease where maybe if the calcium score is zero, I don't have to, you know, push them so hard. That puts them in a lower category. I think it's helpful for people who are uh, experiencing statin-associated muscle symptoms for primary prevention uh, in terms of, you know, how hard do we keep, you know, working on trying to get them on statins, uh, you know, trying different doses, trying different regimens. Uh, you know, if their calcium score is zero, this puts them into a much lower risk category where maybe stats could be uh, deferred. So I think any case, uh, especially borderline intermediate risk, where there's uncertainty about risk, uh, whether there's sort of reluctance to start statins, I think seeing is believing. So a lot of my patients who maybe didn't want to start a statin, once they saw pictures of their own arteries, you know, they have disease in their own arteries, it becomes a lot more real. So it's helped to at least, you know, with some adherence. Uh, and it also may help identify individuals who actually may uh, not benefit as much from statins because a, a calcium score of zero may actually de-risk them into a lower risk category where they might not uh, get as much net benefit. So it can be really helpful because it can refine risk both upwards and downwards. One of the editorials uh, in Jack, you know, Jack, uh, they have those great kind of guideline summaries that come out each each time they publish a guideline. Uh, 
Dr. I guess Dr. Ruben Fire wrote this one for the 2018 guideline and about CAC scoring, he mentioned that a CAC score of zero, um, you can often you can often withhold or delay statin treatment unless they're a smoker or they have diabetes um, or maybe like a really strong family history where you're still worried anyway. Do you do you kind of throw in those caveats to a, a non-zero CAC score or to a CAC score of zero rather? Yeah. So first of all, you know, it takes time for plaque to become calcified. So I think a calcium score of zero, you know, in a 69 year old uh, who survived, you know, to an older age, perhaps with a calcium score of zero is maybe a lot more reassuring and younger adults, uh, you know, in a 40 year old, although their short term risk uh, may still be low, uh, you know, certainly I would consider, you know, reassessment. five years because they might not have uh, uh, calcified yet. So in terms of what is the warranty period for a zero calcium score? Well, certainly smokers uh, who and uh, those with a family history or these other risk enhancers, uh, you might uh, be more vigilant about screening sooner. And I usually don't get a calcium score in patients with diabetes unless they have such extreme uh, statin reluctance because usually they're indicated for a statin anyway. Um, so I think you have less, a little bit less confidence about a zero score in these higher risk groups. But um, data from NASA study have suggested that even with diabetes, a calcium score of zero, uh, their event rate is pretty similar to a non-diabetic with a calcium score of zero. Great. Thank you. So we've been talking about primary prevention, and of course, it looks like this patient might be a good candidate for statin therapy. I guess my main question is, so if you want to start a patient on statin therapy, could you um, sort of give us in your own words, sort of your script on how you discuss with a patient that do you think they should start on a statin therapy, especially if they seem like they're sort of on the reluctant side? Right. So first of all, you know, we, when considering drug therapy, we want to estimate, uh, you know, max, maximize the intensity of therapy to one's absolute risk. So I really want to discuss the patient, their net benefit. I mean, I was surprised this young woman has a, uh, uh, who's only 55 has a, a 10 year risk score above 20%. Usually the problem with young people is that they have a often a low short term risk, but a really high lifetime risk. But in randomized clinical trials, for every um, one millimole per liter or 39 milligrams per deciliter reduction in LDL, the relative risk reduction in cardiovascular events is uh, about 22% and about a 10% reduction in mortality. But higher risk people, um, it depends on the absolute risk of the patient that uh, higher risk people derive more net benefit. So we really, when I talk to them, I talk about the net benefit. I mean, patients like numbers, but I you know, talk to them about this as being prevention drugs. So these, the sole purpose of, of giving this is not so much to make the LDL number, although that's important because I think lower is better for higher risk patients, but mostly it's to re- reduce cardiovascular risk. So I talk to them about risk reduction. Um, For a patient who's statin reluctant a little bit, that's where um, if there is some indecision, that's where I think it's the perfect uh, time to get a coronary artery calcium score because that can help further refine the risk. Uh, again, if their score is zero, maybe you could defer it uh, for now, the statins, and recheck the score in five years. But I have had many patients who, you know, once they got the calcium score and they saw the disease in their artery and they have plaque, um, they were much more willing to, uh, to start a, a, a preventative therapy. So I think that can be really helpful in guiding the risk discussion. 
but do you want to involve the patient? So it's a patient clinician risk discussion. So you want to understand their net benefit from statins based on their absolute risk. Uh, talk to them about their own concerns, their preferences, um, and then, uh, you know, talk about uh, potential risks of the therapy, which for statins, they're actually a very safe and well-tolerated medication, uh, but can talk about drug-drug interactions or, or cost considerations, which again, is not so much an issue with statins because they're, uh, you know, cheap and, and generic. But you really want to have this discussion of the intersection of what the evidence shows, your clinical judgment about the patient in front of you, and the, and the patient's uh, own preferences to come up with a patient-centered approach to prevention. Erin, I wanted to ask, there's, there's a lot of misinformation about statins. I think we've all seen the nocebo effect where they've heard that they're going to get a myopathy, so then they experience a myopathy when they, when they try statins. And how do you... How do you address that when patients come to you and say, um, Dr. Mikos, I, I have, uh, you know, I don't want to go on a statin. I heard they cause dementia. I heard that my liver is going to fail. I, I think I have a friend of a friend who had uh, their muscles all broke down. How do you address that? And how do you talk about, you know, like what's the risk of that happening versus how much it might lower their, well, let's just start with that. What's the risk of that happening? Uh, so this is, you know, quite a challenge. As you mentioned, the nocebo effect, the negative anticipation that believing something's going to harm you, you have more likely to report side effects. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a real shame because these widespread claims on the internet about, uh, you know, prevent too many people from taking a very affordable, safe, and potentially life-saving medication. Um, so first of all, I, the guidelines recommend not using the word intolerance when talking to the patient. So we talk about statin-associated muscle symptoms. Um, and most of the time, um, uh, you know, these can you be comprehensively assess this and, and most patients tolerate or re-challenge. And so really emphasize the, the net clinical benefit. Uh, I certainly uh, talk about the uh, tremendous uh, safety data, uh, um, you know, the risk of uh, severe muscle injury is, you know, less than 0.1%. Um, and that uh, muscle symptoms are actually very unlikely to be caused by the statins. So if they are you know, having these, we rechallenge with the same statin at lower doses and um, to reduce, reduce the risk. But I really emphasize, you know, the safety, this, the risk of serious statin-induced muscle injury uh, is like less than 0.1% for rhabdo. For liver toxicity, it's even lower. It's like one in 100,000. Right. Um, and so uh, this is a challenging conversation to have with patients. I, I um, there's no evidence at all uh, that you know, statins cause cognitive decline or um, you know, cataracts or all of these other uh, things have been um, really quite ruled out with because we have a lot of large uh, randomized clinical trials. Um, but you know, by trying to buy the patient's trust, uh, understand their concerns. We talk about net benefit. We start low. We go slow. Uh, we, it's about building uh, relationships and trying to, to build their trust. But it can be really hard to compete against the, uh, the internet. Yeah. So I, so I have two questions. You, uh, to go back on two things that you said. Um, one was you, you just said that um, you may start low and go slow for patients who have concerns. So say, uh, according to the guidelines, someone's supposed to be started on a high-intensity statin therapy. You would, if they have concerns, you may start them at you know a low or moderate dose and then work them up to it. Is that what you're saying? 
Yeah, so clearly there's recommendations about the intensity of therapy to master the absolute risk of the patient. So there's definitely an intensity that I want to get them on. Um, and so for patients that uh, want to optimize their prevention, I start with the, the recommended dose, the recommended intensity. But for patients that come with this reluctance and they have a, you know, first of all, I assess, do they really need it? So of course, if they're secondary prevention, they need it. And primary prevention, maybe I'll get the calcium score to see if they really need it. But if they really do have a compelling indication for statin therapy, again, to kind of buy their trust to kind of dissuade some of these concerns they have, um, I generally do, uh, if they express concerns, you know, start low, uh, make sure that they tolerate it, you know, so that they can see I'm following them and I'm, you know, listening to them. And and then, you know, we, we monitor their LDL to see what the response was, uh, you know, whether they have the LDL reduction we hope to achieve and then kind of gradually go from there. And this approach has worked for some patients. I think um, the muscle symptoms that have been reported uh, is dose related. So uh, I think starting low uh, and getting patients kind of used to this concept, I think can be helpful. You, and you so, mentioned the intensity thing. I think just to point out for the audience, it's so for high intensity, 50% reduction in, in LDL. And for moderate intensity, it's what, 30, 30 to 50% and low intensity is less than 30%. Am I getting that right? Right. So the individuals who are recommended for high intensity statins, so uh, we are recommending uh, the intensity to get the achieved uh, LDL percent reduction that we want. So a high intensity statin should reduce LDL by 50%. And that's recommended for secondary prevention for age less than 75. It's recommended for people with uh, LDL above 190 would be on a high intensity statin. Uh, Patients uh, with a 10-year risk score, more than 20% would be recommended for high-intensity statin. And patients with diabetes who have multiple ASCVD risk factors or other diabetes risk-enhancing factors, those would be recommended for high-intensity statins. Modern-intensity statins uh, reduce LDL by at least 30%, uh, and that would be your sort of your primary prevention uh, cohort that we would would start if they didn't have uh, those other factors. Before I forget, can we can we just define primary prevention and secondary prevention? And then, Paul, uh, just just since we've said them so many times, just who do you lump into primary prevention? Who do you lump into secondary? Right. So secondary prevention is someone who has had a, a clinical event, you know, a, a, either a myocardial infarction or acute coronary syndrome, or they've had a, a coronary stent or, or a, a revascularization, or they've had a, a ischemic stroke or peripheral arterial disease. People with uh, uh, had had a clinical event. Um, where primary prevention is people who have not yet had an event, uh, but we're trying to uh, treat risk factors to prevent that first event. And of course, I'm a big fan of primordial prevention, which should begin, you know, from in utero, which is trying to prevent risk factors from developing in the first place by a healthier lifestyle, because even the presence of, you know, one major risk factor by middle age is associated with sort of a, a shortened survival. So we all should be focusing on primordial prevention. But I want to talk about about that it's a blurred line really between primary and secondary prevention because there's all these people also with subclinical disease. You know, the coronary calcium, it's considered primary prevention, but people with elevated scores, particularly above 300, uh, with coronary calcium scores above 300, they have event rates very similar to a stable secondary prevention population. Uh, And so I actually kind of treat them like secondary prevention. And I'll point out that the European guidelines actually have... um, uh, shown uh, 
imaging uh, findings of sort of significant subclinical disease and in, in, in coronary stenosis on imaging, they also put them into a higher risk secondary prevention group. So I think it's a spectrum. I mean, atherosclerosis uh, is developing over one's lifetime uh, and that I think that we need to reduce uh, uh, the LDL uh, burden to kind of slow plaque progression. And actually, I think sometimes we wait too long for, for treatment that maintaining optimal lipid levels throughout adulthood can help substantially slow the rate of progression of atherosclerotic plaques. Paul, you had a question? Sure. Yeah. Well, I guess a question I had is I, I feel like I have a somewhat different conversation with my patients in terms of like, they, they seem to be fairly trusting that I'm going to not prescribe the medication that will hurt them. And I I feel like I try to sort of go over potential side effects. The question I get asked more than any other is, well, what should my cholesterol be? And this is, you know, regardless of sort of primary prevention land or, or secondary prevention or sort of this muddy middle ground, how, I guess, specifically in regards to primary prevention, how do you frame that conversation when that question comes up? Because it's less, what is my risk reduction and how, like, I don't have, I don't seem to have that type of conversation. It's more, okay, doc, I'll take it, but what should my cholesterol be? <laughs> how do you, how do you actually answer that question? Yeah, so this is challenging because it's really, these are risk-based decisions. Uh, you know, we make decisions based on risk and not so much uh, based on, on on numbers because, for example, a very high-risk person, you know, with an LDL of, of 70, you know, that's too high. Uh, you know, lower is better. Uh, you know, some of these PCSK9 trials like Fourier, you know, we're trying to get the median LDL less than 30. So, you know, I, I think uh, the number really sort of depends on risk and generally, lower is better, but how aggressive we get there really depends on risk. So when some people are, most people are born, um, you know, let's say of FH, sort of the average uh, LDLs or at birth is around 40 to 60 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, and then we do have like a, a lot of acquired uh, lipids throughout lifetime through sort of poor diet uh, and, and so forth. So um, I think for people at lower risk, really trying through primordial prevention and healthier diet to try to lower LDL uh, that way. Um, but certainly as risk goes up, uh, uh, we start adding intensity of treatment, which often means adding pharmacological therapy, statins, and then of course in secondary prevention, the highest risk individuals uh, once they're on a maximal statin, if they still have uh, you know elevated LDL, we would then add you know azetamide and and uh, and then even you know PCSK9 inhibitors after that if their LDL is still above seventy. So the number really uh, is lower generally is better, but how we get there uh, and how aggressive we are it really is a sort of risk based conversation. So my next question would be: So you decide to start a patient on a statin therapy? How often are you? following up labs and then you know if they are reaching those goals on those follow-up labs how often do you get repeat labs after that Yes. So, you know, this isn't a, a fire and forget, even though we're not so much, we're not titrating to a specific number, um, but you do need to uh, measure uh, follow-up labs to make sure that you had the appropriate um, reduction in LDL that you're anticipating. So after starting therapy, we want to sort of measure between four to 12 weeks, sort of, um, you know, one to three months after um, of starting therapy to see, you know, did you get the achieved LDL that you want, you know, if you use the high intensity statin, did you get that 50% reduction? If you didn't, you know, there's uh, questions, conversations you should have about adherence and so forth. And then importantly, when you start thinking about secondary prevention, and when you're talking about thresholds of LDL to add on non-statin therapy, you know, you need to measure LDL so that you see if you're above that threshold, you start intensifying therapy by by adding on, uh, adding on these other drugs for these secondary prevention. And so every time you 
make a change, um, certainly I, I check again, uh, you know, within uh, three months if I've made a change. So what, what about our patients who've been stable on, on the therapy? I get this question from residents all the time. They're like, well, they're stable on their statin therapy for the last like three years, been getting their, their lipids annually and they haven't changed at all. Is that something that people continue to do? Would, would it be reasonable to check it maybe every three years or five years, patients who are stable on their therapy? Um, you know, again, diet, lifestyle, other things can influence, uh, you know, their lipid levels. You know, if a woman goes through, you know, menopause, her LDL may go up. So, uh, especially in high-risk patients, I think we still uh, should continue to check in on them if they're on therapy. Now, in younger individuals uh, who, uh, if their LDL, if their cholesterol is well-controlled, you may uh, only check every four to six years. But certainly once you uh, start therapy, uh, we continue to sort of follow uh, labs, uh, at least annually. Um, you know, the guidelines say specifically, you know, you measure that first lipid four to 12 weeks after initiation. And then um, after that, it's sort of every three to 13 months, you know, depending on, you know, the individual patient's uh, situation. Right. And I feel to some extent it actually shows that you're taking it seriously. Like it may not actually change what you do clinically, but also... It's like when you tell someone to, you should diet and exercise and let's not speak of this again for another year. Like, I think if instead you're, you sort of actually demonstrate that you're still following it, it sort of, it, it reinforces adherence to some degree too, probably. Right. I mean, one of the biggest risk factors for subsequent uh, cardiovascular events is, is non-adherence. And so um, many patients, you know, stop therapy kind of on their own and they don't tell you. And one of the best ways to sort of see if they're sort of non-adherent is to, of course, to, uh, to be following those labs and checking in on them. Um, you know, large uh, sort of observational um, study from the United Kingdom that came out recently, you know, looked at um, patients prescribed a statin. And so the biggest, uh, the highest event rates were among people that were not adherent uh, by looking at prescription refills who were, you know, taking low intensity statins. And the lowest event rates were people that were adherent and taking high intensity statins. So, uh, you know, you want to have the appropriate uh intensive treatment, uh, you know, to, to get LDL lower, you know, you have to be taking the appropriate dose and you have to be adherent to the prescribed medications. Aaron, we had a question. Uh, I believe this might've been from Twitter and also, um, just one of the ones that our team had thought of the, and, and I think you kind of answered this already. You said you like to kind of start low and then follow the numbers. A Torva 80 versus a Torva 40 and I guess Rosuvastatin 20 versus 40 do you do you start at the kind of the lower dose because they're both sort of considered high intensity, right? Like a Torva forty is kind of high intensity versus a Torva eighty. Right. So again, when I said I tar start low and go slow, I mean this was that was for the statin reluctant person. So right. I, 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 you know, we're, we want to get it on the appropriate intensity. So I don't want to give the impression that I would stop at that based on some arbitrary LDL value. So you yeah. want to use the right intensity. That was only that I have my goal in mind. I'm just trying to build a relationship to sure. build up. Um, so, you know, again, you can get sort of an additional uh, doubling the statin is associated with every sort of approximate five to six percent greater lowering of LDL, uh, although muscle symptoms can be dose related. Um, so, you know, I... Uh, it depends if they the risk of the patient. If certainly if they're in your CCU and had acute coronary syndrome, I kind of start them on a you know Torva eighty or uh, sort of from the get go. Um, but in, you know in practice, 
um, you know, you can get more LDL reduction with the Torva 80. You can get about 50 to 60% LDL reduction. And with the Torva 40, it's about sort of 40 to 52% reduction. So you get a little bit more with the Torva 80, but you get might get more side effects. So I think it depends on the patient. Um, I end up using a lot of combination between, you know, a Torva 40 or uh, with a Zetamide um, for patients that do have some concerns about muscle symptoms, even if it is a nocebo effect. Uh, you know, I, I tend to do that. But um, in the highest risk patients, though, um, I'll, I'll start uh, high intensity therapy right in the sort of the CCU. So because hopefully they'll go home on that therapy and stay adherent to it. So my next question is go, goes back to what you sort of said a little while back. So you spent all this time getting a patient on dose statin therapy, you built this great relationship, and they just can't tolerate the dose that you start them on. Now, is like say they have like maybe elevated CK or they don't have elevated CK and they just have lots of myalgias. You said, uh, but you know, you would re, uh, possibly rechallenge the patient with the same medication at a lower dose. Um, like how low, how much lower dose would you consider switching to something like a pravastatin? And then, is there a washout period when you stop the patient on a statin and say, well, let's let's hold off for like a couple of weeks and now we'll re- restart it at a lower dose? And what what is sort of your way at addressing that. Yeah, so it's challenging. So, because again, you know, um, about 10% of patients stop a statin because of subjective complaints. But, you know, most uh, muscle symptoms, you know, don't have an, a race uh, creatinine kinase. And, and actually, you know, as you know, in clinical trials, uh, there's really no difference in muscle symptoms uh, in individuals treated uh, or not treated with statin uh, uh, th- uh, therapy. Uh, so, a lot of it uh, that when patients are rechallenged, um, most patients with this history of intolerance. Uh, um, in, in randomized clinical trials, when they're blinded, this intolerance is generally not reproducible. Um, so even though the muscle symptoms are unlikely because of a statin, um, I uh, sometimes I'll start, um, you know, every other day, I tend to use a lot of resuvastatin. Um, you could use pravastatin, although it's that's even weaker. Um, there's more, um, seems to be more muscle symptoms with your simvastatin and your lovastatin. So there seems to be a little bit less maybe with the pravastatin and, and resuvastatin, although all statins can have this. Um, so I'll start like resuvastatin, five milligrams, you know, three times a week for some of my most challenging patients, along with azetamide, um, just to get them on something, you know, any bit of LDL lowering is is better, um, even though if you won't have the anticipated re- reduction, you know, any amount of LDL that you can lower is better than none. And then we kind of work from there. And then, of course, it depends on the risk of the patient. You know, once you've really tried everything, and this is really the highest dose you can get them on, if there's secondary prevention and their LDL threshold is still above 70, that's when you can start using PCSK9 inhibitors. Or if they have FH, familial hypocholesterolemia, if their LDL is still above 100, um, although we currently aren't using those for sort of lower risk primary prevention. Um, and in the future, we might have more options. I'm kind of excited about bempedoic acid. We need our large clinical outcome trials, uh, which is being studied. But this is an oral medication that um, uh, works in the same pathway of cholesterol synthesis as statins, but it doesn't seem to have the same muscle effects. So this may be an option in the future. If, if it, we, The clear harmony and clear wisdom trials have shown that it reduces LDL, but we have to see if it reduces outcomes. But we might have more options for that. 
And then in, in down along the PCSK9 uh, pathway, um, I'm very also excited to see what happens with um, inclizarin, uh, which is a small interfering RNA um, that inhibits uh, PCSK9 enzyme. And that is only dosed twice a year, you know, just one more shot. It's just, that's an injection, but only one more time than a flu shot. Uh, and that can lower LDL by 60%. We just saw that at the American Heart Association with the yeah. Orion 10 study. Talk about compliance. I mean, yeah. So talk about clients. So I think that will be, now we have to have the outcome trials. So yeah. Ori, Orion 4 is looking for outcomes. So we need to see if it reduces outcomes, although I'm a big believer in LDL. So I think that it's going to reduce outcomes the lower we get LDL. But I think that will help with our younger people, um, adherence and, um, and, and, and with PCSK9 inhibitors so far, we aren't seeing any of these muscle symptoms. So I think there'll be newer therapies down the line. Uh, but right now I still work with them with uh, statin and azetamide um, unless they're secondary prevention and then we can have some additional things to offer. I wanted to just comment on the, you, you mentioned outcomes trials with PCSK9. To my understanding, mortality, not not yet convincingly shown to have like a big effect on mortality. Maybe one of the agents had a little bit of it, but not the other, but they, they did seem to reduce uh, non-fatal MI and non-fatal stroke and that was in like around the two-year range, and we don't have really long-term safety data on them yet, but so far we think they're safe. Yeah, well, the curves are widening. So we have two very large um, cardiovascular outcome trials for the PCSK9 inhibitors that are the monoclonal antibodies. That's uh, the four-year trial with uh, Evolacumab and the Odyssey outcome trial with uh, Alaracumab. And, uh, you know, one was 2.2 years and Odyssey, it was four-year and Odyssey was 2.8 years. But this is, everybody, you know, was on uh, the maximally tolerated statin. They were on aggressive secondary prevention. So this was adding on the background of a patient that were already pretty well treated. And both um, Fourier and Odyssey showed that the PCSK9 inhibitors reduced major adverse cardiovascular events by 15%, which I think is meaningful. Uh, it was only like a 2% absolute risk, but this was a short trial. And um, as you know, plaques, as atherosclerosis is progressing, you know, it takes a little time for these, uh, uh, for LDL-directed therapies to work. And if you look at the curves, they're continuing to widen, suggesting with more benefit over time suggesting if they continue longer, you might actually see greater benefit. So in um, Odyssey, was, which was higher risk patients with acute coronary syndrome, um, there was a significant um, mortality reduction in terms of, a, you know, that by also a 15% with, by the p-value, but because of the pre-specified hierarchical testing, um, it wasn't considered a significant event because it's, uh, they have to go down, you know, with multiple outcomes. And so by the time they reach mortality, even though the p-value uh, was certainly less than 0.05, uh, it wasn't considered significant by, by that strategy. But I'm really encouraged by uh, the safety was very good. I mean, we got to very very low LDL yeah, level. Incredible. Like Incredibly. in the 20s, right? Like Right. I mean, in four-year, the median LDL was less than a 30. And there has been no <laughs> signal uh, for harm. Like there has been no um, hemor increased hemorrhagic stroke risk uh, with very low LDL. Uh, you know, we don't see the signal for diabetes uh, that had been raised with statin, higher dose statins. We don't see, um, you know, any of the muscle symptoms. I mean, the safety data, you know, granted, we, it's, they were under three years, but the safety data was very reassuring, particularly for hemorrhagic stroke. And I think we need to sort of unlearn the concern for um, 
uh, a very low LDL, it just seems that there is no floor. <laughs> that lower is better uh, and just these high-risk patients to help prevent uh, further plaque progression. So I think we might have to, uh, because of time, move on to secondary prevention, I do, though I do want to um, touch on three medications that I think in terms of primary prevention that I get asked often about. So the three are aspirin for primary prevention, um, fibrates for primary prevention, especially with high triglycerides, when to start those, and um, a new kit on the block, icosapent ethyl. Do you think you could speak to any of those? Yeah. So, you know, in aspirin, I, you know, I was one of the co-authors for the 2019 primary prevention guidelines. So, uh, you know, we ended up um, sort of downgrading our recommendation for aspirin uh, based on uh, to a 2B indication. It previously was a one class one indication for individuals with 10-year risk scores above 10%. But, um, you know, for, for aspirin, um, uh, you know, risk generally tracks, uh, ASCVD risk tracks with leading risk, and we really couldn't find any 10-year cut point where the benefits of aspirin outweighed the risk of bleeding. Um, you know, the absolute benefits of, of avoiding serious vascular events, you know, in these trials were largely counterbalanced by the increased risk of bleeding, or, or some of the trials didn't show any benefit. Um, so we gave it a 2B indication uh, that low-dose aspirin might be considered for the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease only among select adults aged 40 to 70 who have higher cardiovascular risk, but not at risk for bleeding. And note that when we say higher risk, we didn't include a 10-year cut point. We uh, recommended the totality of evidence, you know, based on family history. Are they current smokers? Do they have subclinical disease by elevated calcium scores? But we didn't uh, have it based on uh, a 10-year risk uh, uh, a cut point. And so that essentially means that for most individuals, no, um, don't use aspirin routinely for primary prevention. Um, for some individuals, yes. Uh, and we gave a class three recommendation of aspirin should not be used routinely in the, for primary prevention adults over the age of 70 because of the harm shown in the ESPRI trial or for adults at any age who are at increased risk for bleeding. Um, in terms of triglycerides, so in patients with uh, significant elevated triglycerides, uh, you know, even above uh, 500, we still recommend statins first line uh, because uh, we're trying to prevent uh, events which are plaque-driven. So statins are still the first line for ASCVD risk reduction, even though they only modestly reduce uh, uh, tr triglycerides. And this is, of course, you first address all the reversible factors. So a lot of hypertriglyceridemia is due to lifestyle obesity, metabolic syndrome, poorly controlled diabetes, uh, uh, and you look at medications, you know, estrogens and other therapies. So try to look for reversible factors. But if, if after you've uh, addressed reversible factors, if their triglycerides are above uh, 500, you know, we would initiate statins. And then if they remain above 500, particularly if they're very high above 1,000 and you're worried about pancreatitis, this is where it's appropriate to, in, you know, initiate fibrate therapy. Um, so icosopent so, uh, ethyl from the REDUCE-IT trials, so that was largely a secondary prevention. So everybody was already on statins. That was important. Um, REDUCE-IT enrolled um, adults who either had established cardiovascular disease 
or they didn't, for the primary prevention group was individuals who had diabetes with at least one other risk factor who were well controlled LDL and a statin and had triglycerides between 135 and 500. And uh, icosomet ethyl, you know, dramatically uh, reduced major cardiovascular events by 25%. And what's really interesting is that it really had this benefit uh, regardless of one's baseline or achieved triglyceride levels. It didn't seem to um, uh, correlate with triglyceride levels uh, in that uh, I think the mechanisms of benefit are beyond our triglyceride lowering effects with this high dose EPA compound that's, uh, you know, four grams a day of, of purified EPA. Um, so likely anti-thrombotic, anti-inflammatory uh, benefits, I think, weigh in, and that maybe triglycerides are a, a marker of selecting a higher risk person, but not really the, the, the target of the therapy. Um, but I just want to point out that I would not extrapolate the very exciting results from Reduce It about Icosomet Ethyl to the over-the-counter dietary fish oil supplements, because that is not <laughs> the same thing. Those things are a mixed bag of DHA, EPA. They have saturated fats have been found in these, oxidized fats. Uh, that's, uh, so that should not be applied to, to those over the dietary supplements. Have you been um, routinely using ethyl in your patients? Yeah. So, you know, I've been using it a lot, uh, but, you know, in high-risk patients, sometimes it's like, what do you, you know, add next? Because we, uh, I definitely, in high-risk patients, try to get the LDL as low as possible. So, you know, when you're intensifying along the LDL lowering pathway, but, you know, many of my patients uh, have cardiometabolic disease and diabetes and have elevated triglycerides. And so, um, you know, I think the findings from that trial were really quite compelling. Um, and so um, I have been, uh, I was sort of prescribed get sort of off-label, and you may have heard that I think the FDA uh, voted kind of unanimously 16 to 0 that to uh, uh, consider the new indication for this for, uh, you know, cardiovascular risk reductions uh, and, you know, not a just a triglyceride uh, treatment medication, but for major cardiovascular risk reduction. So, um, a challenge has even been after this trial, um, still getting uh, pre-auth approval. I still run into um, issues with insurance companies, uh, but I'm hoping with this new, um, you know, um, with approval from the FDA, uh, that it'll be a little bit easier in the future. I, I think they still have to take four, it's four grams, like the same as, it's four grams a day, which mm -hmm. is for, which is a lot. I, I think, and I think, I think it's relatively expensive, like 200 to 300 some dollars a month the last I looked it up and and it's for t it, the pill burden becomes a thing I believe so probably right, not well, compare, probably not yeah. for everybody but well, again, I don't apply it to everybody. You yeah. know, people in Reduce It were secondary prevention right. or high-risk diabetics with multiple risk factors. That's who's in there. I'm maybe very interested in seeing trials in, in lower-risk primary prevention, yeah. but those are the people in there. But if you were to try to get four grams of EPA by dietary supplements, I don't recommend it, but if you were going <laughs> to try to do that, that's probably like 25 pills to try to get to that amount of EPA. Right. Um, so, you know, relatively related to that. So, um, you know, I, when you're trying to target which therapies, you know, I look at sort of their, their broad uh, lipid profile, but I think it's a, this is a really, um, you know, good option. I mean, 25%, uh, it was really quite meaningful uh, reduction in risk. So we sort of slid a little bit into secondary prevention, or I, I just want to clarify just one thing in terms of secondary prevention, and I think it's a, a big big point that was different with the 2018 guidelines is um, in the secondary prevention, you know, one big fork is this very high risk group versus stable ASV group. 
And if you could sort of explain sort of the main difference, because I think there's a lot of confusion among that by some of my residents and my other learners. Yeah, so exactly. So just like we talked about primary prevention, how intense we do the therapy is based on the absolute risk of the patient. It's the same concept in secondary prevention that there's a big difference between someone who's in your CCU who just had an acute coronary syndrome versus someone who maybe got a stent 10 years ago with for stable angina, um, you know, and so they're sort of at lower uh, risk. And so when we look at trials like Improve It, uh, that was acute coronary syndrome patients, odyssey uh, outcomes, you know, we, the guidelines give a much stronger recommendation for uh, individuals who are at very high risk. And so uh, among the secondary prevention cohort, those who are very high risk are those who've had a recent coronary syndrome within the past 12 months, you know, have had multiple MIs, ischemic stroke, you know, symptomatic peripheral arterial disease with other risk uh, conditions, such as being older, having FH or diabetes and CKD and smoking. And so, so if you have, uh, you know, one of these major events um, or multiple high-risk conditions, we want to uh, be even more, you know, aggressive with their therapy. So everybody for secondary prevention uh, under the age of 75 is recommended for a high-intensity statin. Again, the goal is to reduce LDL by 50%. And then the guidelines now have added back thresholds. Now, this is not targets. These are thresholds um, because just like in the four-year trial uh, and the Odyssey outcomes trial, this uh, to get enrolled in the trial, you had to have an LDL above 70 to be enrolled in the trial. So these are thresholds to add on non-statin therapy, but they're not a target. We're not treating the targets. So for the more stable, not at very high risk secondary prevention, it's only a 2B indication to add azetamide if the LDL threshold is still above 70. We're in a very high risk patient. Uh, it's a st little bit stronger, uh, you know, should be considered uh, is reasonable to uh, start azetamide on top of a maximal statin if the LDL is, is above 70 um, to add azetamide as a 2A indication. And then for this very high risk a group, if you're on a maximal statin and you're on azetamide and your LDL is still above 70, that's where the PCSK9 inhibitor uh, comes in with a 2A indication is in these very high-risk groups. And uh, this is this delineation is somewhat due to cost. The U.S. guidelines as opposed to the European guidelines did take cost consideration in their recommendation, and that's why they sort of reserve the PCSK9 for the, the verest, very highest risk group. And then you pray it gets approved by insurance. <laughs> right, right. How, how do you guys get around uh, insurance approvals? Do you have like some nurses who are really good at like getting these pushed through in terms of prior offs or is there a certain way? I think that uh, the ACC actually has like almost like a, like a insurance tool to help people get these approved. Do you guys use any of those types of um, tools? Yeah, so I think it's gotten a lot easier, um, a little bit easier over time as the process gets really streamlined. So we do have one kind of lipid clinic that uh, uh, where we have um, uh, patient uh, navigators and pharmacists that, uh, you know, can really, uh, people that can help us. We have a lipid nurse practitioner that's gotten really good at um, filling out the paperwork. It's kind of knowing, you know, what, what we need in terms of documentation about statin intolerance and cardiovascular risk and filling this out. Uh, and so having kind of training kind of one group of people who can do this really well, um, I think can uh, really help navigate the system. So knowing the FDA approved indications, you know, and then prescribing and reinforcing based on these, uh, these indications. And uh, these, uh, 
uh, navigators that we sort of call them. They can become really familiar with these forms uh, and we have just a lot more success uh, and you can really leverage the electronic medical record to facilitate this, this process. Um, and then uh, also really helpful is a team-based approach to you know, teach patients how to, to take the medication, what to expect, and again, reinforce adherence to their other medications. So um, I think it's getting easier or maybe we're just getting better at you know, knowing what paperwork to fill out. Um, but it's still a, a challenge for um, other types of medicines. I, I still have trouble sometimes with eicosapet ethyl or some of the uh, new uh, SGL2 inhibitors or GLP-1 receptor agonists. Uh, the pre can be quite painful. Yeah. I think we're going to ask for some take-home points. Are you guys good with that? Any other questions? Yeah, I, I think we have to go to take-home points and we can, with this conversation can spill over to Twitter or we can invite Aaron back for a round two or maybe just let her answer listener questions or something like that. We can, uh, we, we, th- that's an episode I do want to pilot at some point this year. Well, great. Well, you know, again, I think I've sort of summarized some of my main points, but that um, lifestyle is still the foundation for prevention. We still, the most important way to prevent cardiovascular disease is through a healthy lifestyle throughout one's lifetime. And then keep in mind that one's, you know, risk of, of atherosclerotic plaque, uh, total plaque burden is really not only the magnitude of LDL elevation, but the duration of exposure. Uh, so again, emphasizing sort of primordial prevention and treating earlier. But in terms of pharmacological therapy, it's all sort of risk-based decisions. And so I'd focus more on that than treating to numbers or treating to targets, that making sure that higher risk people get on the most appropriate therapy. Um, And we talked about secondary prevention, maximal tons of statins, and then adding on azetamide and PCSK9 for the highest risk individuals. And then in primary prevention, you know, when there's uncertainty about risk, uh, you know, considering all those risk enhancers and then coronary artery calcium scores can be helpful to guide the conversation uh, for shared decision-making um, to define risk upwards or downwards to make decisions. But I would really uh, recommend a, a sort of a team-based approach with care, uh, involved uh, dietitians, nutritionists, exercise physiologists, uh, nurse educators, um, and really come up with a patient-centered approach and engaging the patient because adherence is one of the biggest predictors of outcomes. And so we need to get the patients on board uh, and be part partners in their own health uh, for cardiovascular disease prevention. All right. I have not been checking LP little a. I definitely want to, that's something I I might have to work into my like, you know, repertoire here because I like the point, I I hadn't heard the point that it's like something you could just check once and then, you know, if it's, it kind of helps risk stratify. I, I like that a lot. Well, it's highly heritable, highly heritable, and it's not really influenced as much by diet or other um, yeah. medications, unfortunately. People didn't check it in the past because we didn't really have a lot of therapy to lower it, uh, mm. that um, statins don't really lower LDL, that lipoprotein little a that much, although they do lower risk. So I measure it because if you have high lipoprotein little a, I put them on statins not to lower the lipoprotein little a, but to, to prevent plaque progression, a lower risk. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we don't really use niacin 
been um, nice and can lower modestly lipoprotein little A, but that also has other side effects. If they're high risk, PCSK9 inhibitors can lower lipoprotein A by about 20%. So that's an option for those that are candidates. But the reason partly to measure this now, as you may know, there's a new uh, ASO drug, uh, antisense oligonucleotide, which can dramatically lower lipoprotein A by 90%. Oh. I mean, we have no other drug that can do that. So that's very exciting. And in phase two trials, it seems to be safe and it seems to lower lipoprotein little A. But like with all these new things that are in the pipeline, we need the outcome trial. We need to show that safe once we apply it to thousands of people and whether, most importantly, whether it reduces major adverse cardiovascular events. Yeah. So I'm excited in the future. We may have bempedoic acid. We may have enclizerin. There's a bunch of triglyceride uh, targeted therapies with uh, uh, therapies against APOC3, uh, you know, and then we have uh, this ASO drugs against uh, for lipoprotein little A. So it's an exciting time to be in lipids. Uh, we're going to have a lot more options than statins, hopefully, in the future if these are shown to be safe and efficacious. Very cool. I was so happy to have one class of medication to worry about. This all sounds very anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, once again, just uh, check out Dr. Mikos's paper in New England Journal uh, on lipid management. Uh, it's it's fantastic. Link it in the show notes. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. You thank for the you. Plug. Thank you, Aaron. This was it was wonderful. This was really it was awesome. Great. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Ah, blessed silence. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Dr. Jasney Devgun, Beth Garbs Garbatelli, Dr. Justin Burke, and Dr. Kate Grant. And also thanks to our social media team, Anna R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Manchu, which is me, on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Chris the Chew Manchu. Uh, missing Stuart Kent Brigham tonight, uh, but he made he composed this wonderful theme music that you hear playing over top of my voice. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Beth Garbatelli. That's the good stuff. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.